Welcome to this alumni catch-up podcast from McGill University School of Physical and Occupational Therapy. These alumni catch-up podcasts let us reminisce about the schools as it was and helps today's students and all our alumni learn about the career paths chosen by those before us. Today, we will be speaking with Ms. Ruth Cooper Zhao, Physiotherapy alumni of the McGill Physical Therapy Program, Class of 1972. My name is Monica Slanik, Class of 1996, and I will be hosting this podcast. Welcome back to the school, Ms. Cooper Zhao. Perhaps we could start with you letting us know what brought you to Montreal today. Well, my husband and I have set up a lectureship having to do with the um, Global Health Initiative. There's going to be today a special lecturer, Paul Farmer, who we have known for quite some time, and he is giving the inaugural lecture. So that's what brought us back here. It's something that resonated with us. I have to say the gift of the lectureship is is so very much appreciated. An event like this with uh, great and interesting speakers such as Dr. Paul Farmer who's here now, it inspires and motivates and provides knowledge not only to so many people during the lecture, during the event, but also um, it's my understanding we're recording this one and it can be students and the public can enjoy it and continue to benefit from it in the coming months and and whenever they want. So yes, again, thank you from McGill and from Montreal. Uh, Speaking of Montreal, it's been a beautiful couple of days and I hope you've been able to enjoy it. Oh, the weather's been fabulous. Yeah. What what a glorious way to, um, you know, to have this this lectureship launched. (laughs) It's totally our pleasure. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your career path after you left McGill University? We moved to the States. We actually moved to New York City. So that sort of filled in until we moved to Boston where I actually started uh, my professional career. And I I worked for seven years in actually a rehab facility in Boston. Okay, and with what population? It actually ran the gamut. There were children, teenagers, and adults with multiple different diagnoses. So it was the full spectrum in terms of population, from young to older, and you were there for seven years? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So from New York City, then to Boston, and and where, where is it that you live right now? We live in Durham, North Carolina. Okay. Okay, so was that the next stop after Boston? No, actually, uh, from Boston, we were in Boston for about 17 years. Then we moved to um, Palo Alto, California, because my husband uh, was the chief of cardiology there at Stanford and then became uh, chief of medicine at okay. Stanford. So we were there for seven years. Okay. Then uh, came back to Boston where he became uh, chief of medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard. So we were there another eight years. And then we moved down to um, Durham, North Carolina because uh, my husband became the uh, chancellor of the health system at Duke. And now uh, uh, Victor is president of the National Academy of Medicine in Washington, D.C. I live in I live in Durham, so he commutes. <laughs> Very good. So that that's uh, so you really have traveled everywhere, all over the U.S. Yes, and yes. a very successful career mm-hmm. he's had. 
And what about you as a physiotherapist after the after working in Boston? Did you work as a physical therapist? No, I did not. Okay. Uh, because we, you know, we had moved to several places. It was sort of like you know reinventing myself, and then. I decided that I really felt I needed to give back to the community that we were that we were living in multiple you know in multiple places and spaces, and I did not resume my you know physical therapy career as you know within a working situation mm-hmm. on a full time basis at all. But did your physical therapy background? <clears throat> you you're a member of various boards and associations, right. and you have been. Over, over these years, did your physical therapy background contribute to your perspective or your contribution to these boards and associations? I, I, I believe yes, especially when you had a patient that was in a non-acute care facility, you really started to understand the social and the economic factors that people had to deal with in their real day-to-day lives mm-hmm. and how that impacted their health in general. Mm-hmm. Whether it was from a sort of a, a pre-illness state and then a, um, you know, during a hospitalization and then after a discharge to see where they, where they went home and what their actual network was, was all about. And that always was a factor in how they could be reintegrated back into into society in general. Right. Into a meaningful life. That's exactly right. That's right. exactly right. And if you had a, um, you know, family members who could be supportive, your outcomes were going to be that much better mm-hmm. versus an individual who had either very minimum support or had no support or mm-hmm. had there were other issues that were just not going to make a recovery possible in, mm-hmm. in the best way that you would hope for them, but that was not always the outcome. So do you, would you say you see yourself sort of as an advocate mm-hmm. for, these, for people in these positions? Well, I, th- I think what it is that I've become an advocate f- in many different ways. Mm-hmm. I, what, one of the things that I had seen when we were when we were in California, had to do with my involvement with the American Heart Association, and at that time, women's health was not even something that physicians or society looked at mm-hmm. in in a in a very um, meaningful way, especially women who had cardiac issues. You would get a sense that the physician just was saying, oh, you're a little bit um, dramatic. You really, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody took you very seriously mm-hmm. if you were having, you know, any type of cardiac situation. It became sort of a, an emotional thing. So the American Heart Association really, especially in, you know, in Palo Alto as a branch, and then we sort of took this a little bit further, were looking at women's health care, especially in, in those circumstances, and saying that women were not being evaluated properly. Mm-hmm. Their concerns were not being addressed in the way and taken seriously the way they should have been. And this was just a reflection of the overall health care delivery that women were not receiving in the mm-hmm. way that they should have been. 
So that was sort of one way that I was I was looking at healthcare. Okay. And did you make some changes while you were on this? Yes, course? we yes we did because it was through education okay. that there were all kinds of um, you know information that went out you know to women, and not only that. I mean, there were um, information that went out to let's say um, OBGYN, mm-hmm. which most women have a connection to. Mm-hmm. So there were other questions that were starting to be asked. A better picture. Of women's health was starting. It was it was not fully launched, but at least it was a, a beginning. Well, thank you on behalf of women. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you have as I you have as I mentioned served on various boards and associations, not only the American Heart Association, but also the Center for Child and Family Health, Museum History, mm-hmm. North Carolina Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, given that many of our listeners are students and young clinicians, any age clinician really, would you have any advice for them as to when they should get involved at these levels with these organizations? Well, I, I think it all depends where you are in your life. And that could be your personal life, your professional life. And sometimes what happens is the people that you interact with can trigger some sort of a light that comes on and you can sort of step back and say this is something that I really think needs attention Mm -hmm. this is something that there could be change and this is something that I really believe I can help change a focus Uh, with an example of when I was in Boston I was on the board of a um, domestic violence transition program and in, in that realm became, and this was the late 90s, early 2000. And what I was seeing that the the medical profession, no matter who touched you, whether it could have been physical therapist, it could have been an occupational therapist, it could have been any, you know, any interaction that, especially with, with anybody who spent time with a patient, there had to be a trust level so that you could communicate. And very often, unless you help somebody lead in a conversation as to, do you feel safe? Mm. Are you in any kind of an environment that you feel threatened? So that these types of questions, which were not being asked by most professionals who came in contact with, and you know, with women, mm. and never gave a woman an option, verbalize that she indeed was in a threatening situation. Mm-hmm. So through that nonprofit, I was seeing that there were other avenues that needed to be brought to light because in the world of domestic violence, most, most women, it takes a, a really horrific situation mm-hmm. for them to leave. Mm-hmm. Be because the abuser can be anybody. Your zip code does not protect you, neither does your um, economic status. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I think most of our culture was not willing to was not willing to recognize. Okay. So there too, women and children right. were victimized multiple times over because society was not going was not really going to be there to protect them in those days. Things have, have come around in, in, in many ways through legislation, 
through awareness, through other kinds of, of programs, it still happens. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in Canada versus the United States, where fewer people own guns, guns are a big factor in domestic violence, mm-hmm. as well as the other physical trauma and psychological trauma that you know that will happen. So that was sort of another you know another group that I that I became. Um, closely aligned with and then when I moved to and this was in Boston and when I moved to North Carolina there was a nonprofit that was actually um, the Center for Child and Family Health Mm -hmm. and it had to do with uh, traumatized children and families and it was actually a consortium of uh, Duke University uh, North Carolina Central and uh, University of North Carolina and it was about um, research, it was about treatment, it was about training of um, experts to deal with traumatized children, and the trauma could be in many different, many different ways. Hmm. And so how many years were you on these two <clears throat> associations? Probably about, let's see, seven years in Boston and then 11 years in North Carolina for the Center for Child okay. and Family Health. So did you see some changes? <clears throat> oh, I saw some enormous changes, especially in, you know, in the center because there was more legislation happening. Right. There was a lot more awareness, mm-hmm. plus there was a lot more research going on as okay. to um, you know, at a um, really in-depth level because the faculty... Um, who were connected to uh, the center actually were um, associate professors and professors in clinical psychology at Duke mm-hmm. University, mm-hmm. and a lot of them had you know a lot of research papers on evidence-based right. research. Then they then they translated that into evidence-based practice. Mm-hmm. So there was there was a lot of attention, especially because there was these three universities that were partnering in, in um, bringing the awareness and then bringing change, not only from a treatment point of view, but also from a legal point of view, so that the courts were also part of the outreach to educate judges and, and, other, and, and the lawyers themselves so that these, these children had a better shot at being productive adults later on right. in life. So early intervention is always the key in you know in these situations excellent i can you know our listeners aren't here but i can see it in your face um how passionate you are about all these things that you've mentioned and and how much meaning i am assuming they've brought to you to be involved and uh, and to be part of these changes i i think in life when you've been gifted in situations that you have never had to deal with these things you don't realize how lucky you are Mm. And when you see um, other situations and it's just your good luck in life that you've never had to have any of these things to deal with, whether it was personal, whether it's for your children, you step back and you, and not everybody, but for me, it was very important that I could say, I can give back in a meaningful way, even though I'm not a, I was not a clinician, Mm-hmm. But I could do other things that would be helpful to, in someone else's life. 
Right. So that's how I looked at a lot of different nonprofits. And there was sort of a, you know, different connectors because a lot of them had to do with social services. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially with you know families and children, right? I see the connection. So that's where that's <laughs> that these were sort of the uh, you know the types of ed- agencies that were you know had this sort of this thread that that interconnected them. Right, right. Um, coming back to McGill, <laughs> so we've traveled through the states and listened about these these groups and the changes that you've made. Um, I'm just wondering, what, what do you remember about your time here at McGill University? It could be something mm. fun, it could be a teacher, anything. Well, let's see, I met my husband at McGill. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yes, that was, that was very nice. But, um, you know, I, I think I, I look back with, you know, with regards to my training, and I really have to admit that the focus at, uh, you know, at the um, School of Physical Therapy was to try to have as much <clears throat> exposure to clinical training. Okay. And you don't always get there. In other schools that, you know, since I actually practice in the United States, a, a lot of schools do not give you that in-depth training. I mean, I had acute care, I had experience at children's hospitals, I had rehabilitation experiences. So I had a whole real breadth of um, of training that nowadays you don't always see that and that was an extraordinary gift mm-hmm. so that you could really feel that you were putting your academic knowledge to really good practice nice. so that to me was was invaluable when I see you know other universities not not doing that outstanding a job as you know for for training hands-on training yeah yeah we definitely have mm-hmm. a lot of hands-on mm-hmm. training and uh, the students get a lot a lot of as much mm-hmm. experience as possible for sure it's something that's very important to us at the program here do you remember anything were you in these buildings in Hosmer and Davis oh we yes definitely <laughs> definitely and this there's creaked at the at the time as well you know, there were certain things about the building that, yes, you looked at, you saw some of the architecture that you said that was beautiful, but it was not very practical. <laughs> well, um, it's still the same. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as I walked in, it was like, oh my goodness, I, I couldn't believe how things had not changed right, in right. some ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, and, and I understand that there is, um, Going to be some changes mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Hopefully, they will be sooner than than anticipated. But I think that um, the time has come. Right. It's interesting because the buildings are old. <clears throat> They're a sense of uh, a comfort. They're like a home a little bit. But uh, yeah, it's time for some change. <laughs> um, and did you meet your, your husband? Was here in medicine? Yes. Yes, he was, he was so in medical school. you met here on campus? <clears throat> yes, we met on campus. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, if you think about the <clears throat> physical therapy profession, whether U.S. or Canada, I think maybe, mm-hmm. what, what, would you, what would you envision? Or what would some words of wisdom you could give for um, future physical therapists or ones that are working out right now or maybe their role within 
an area you're familiar with within global health or within a lot of the family health you talked about? Well, I, I, I guess what happens sometimes, and I certainly understand completely how research plays a role in the, the sort of the, you know, the long-term um, outlook in any profession. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in general, you have to be careful that you never lose the clinical in, integration of the actual research and you bring it back so that it is translational right. and that peace needs to come full circle. It, you, it's not just living in your ivory tower, mm-hmm. but you actually are very pragmatic about the application of what you have discovered you know, for your, for your research. But it's not just keeping it within the institution, it's getting it out there to practicing therapists so that everybody is brought up to date on things that can impact uh, a clinician on the ground who may not be aware of these other you know, research findings and how to apply the new knowledge right. within their working um, you know, environment to make sure that they've got the best practice models available right. to them and then you know to their to their patients. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It, it's really interesting that you bring the concept of knowledge translation. Um, it's exciting because this is one of the initiatives that we here at the school v- feel very strongly about on many levels. Uh, there are quite a few faculty who focus on teaching knowledge translation and incorporating this into the research that's happening here at the school is critical. As you said, including not only the clinicians, but the patients as well to complete the full circle. Um, I'm just wondering, what would be your suggestion to clinicians who work in more rural areas or are in general a little more isolated, whether they're in private practice or or rural? Um, How would you recommend they stay current? Well, I guess it depends on how welcoming, um, you know, well, first of all, how close they are to a university setting, mm-hmm. whether there are um, programs available through, you know, the, you know, the internet mm-hmm. to sort of keep up with your, with, with the new findings. But I think there also has to be an outreach from either the Physical Therapy Association mm-hmm. to reach out to um, all its members right. and to help them access whatever you know whatever they can and 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 I guess the other thing is that when you're not necessarily in an academic institution the, the treatments that you devise for your patients may have to be very you know modified because you do not have all the technology right. that you may have within an academic institution or a um, you know or a, a large hospital so there needs to be some ways to uh, adapt mm-hmm. and that needs to be a two-way you know a two-way conversation because it's very nice to have all the the high tech but that's not always translatable out in rural communities right right out in real life in real life that's exactly it in yeah. real life okay well thank you so i wish everybody the best of luck right. and to take advantage of the future
So thank you for being here, and thank you for the lectureship, for the gift that you and your husband have, have donated to McGill. We're very, all of us, and not only, I don't speak on behalf of the, just the school, but the university is very grateful for this. Um, thank you for coming to visit these buildings, Hosmer and Davis, and stirring up some memories, and, and for sharing uh, your career path and the decisions that you've made and everything you've participated in. We really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's certainly been my pleasure. It's like coming home in some ways. Things, things haven't changed, but yet you also hope that in the future there will be other opportunities for the School of uh, Physical and Occupational Therapy and I just, just wish that everybody has an extraordinary trajectory of success.